Would you open your Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 15? Deuteronomy chapter 15. We invite children here, kindergarten or first grade, who'd like to go to Children's Church. To do that, they can head out through the, uh, the back in the foyer. Deuteronomy chapter 15. You can find that on page 186 in the Pew Bible, if you're using a Pew Bible. This morning we're studying Deuteronomy uh, 15, verses 1 to 18. Let me read these first 18 verses. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment from his fellow Israelite or brother because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your brother owes you. However, there should be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, He will richly bless you, if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as He has promised, and you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year of canceling debts is near, so that you do not show ill will toward your needy brother and give him nothing. He may then appeal to the Lord against you, and you'll be found guilty of sin. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all the work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. If a fellow Hebrew, a man or woman, sells himself to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year you must let him go free. And when you release him, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you, because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, then take an awl and push it through his earlobe into the door, and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your maidservant. Do not consider it a hardship to set your servant free, because his service to you these six years has been worth twice as much as that of a hired hand. And the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. Shakespeare, Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 3. The old doddering Polonius is rattling off Proverbs for his son Laertes. And during that sort of, uh, you know, cascade of Proverbs, he quotes that line that's one of the more familiar lines from that play where he says about borrowing and lending, 
neither a borrower nor a lender be. It makes me wonder if Polonius was from Denmark or from New England, perhaps. Um, it seems like kind of a Yankee sentiment. Neither a borrower nor a lender be. In fact, I don't know which is harder for us New Englanders. Is it lending or is it borrowing? Actually having to say to somebody, I need something, could you help me? But you know, we're not Yankees anymore. I mean, we are kind of, some of us, but we're Christians. We have died to our old life. We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised again to a new life. And we've entered into the kingdom of God, which has a very different culture to it than the world around us. As Christians, we've come from, you know, some of us have come from New England, some of us come from the West, some of us come from different parts of the world. But in Christ, we're forming a new nation, a new humanity, and there's an entirely unique culture to this new humanity in Christ that's been formed that, that we should practice even in the local church. And part of that relates to how we deal with giving and receiving, with borrowing and loaning. And rather than neither a borrower nor a lender be, the picture we see in Scripture is one of radical generosity within the community of faith. As we look here at Deuteronomy 15, come to this text. Last Sunday we were in Deuteronomy 14. It was about tithing. This Sunday we're in Deuteronomy 15, which is about borrowing, lending, uh, indentured servitude, slavery. I mean, all kinds of interesting topics. But I, what I want you to notice is that the thread that connects these chapters together is really a concern for, for radical generosity within the community of faith. Whether it's tithing, because what was the tithe supposed to go to in part? It was to help those who were needy within the covenant community. And so also when we get to uh, loaning and paying back loans and indentured servitude, the real concern is that the people be a generous and compassionate people. So here in chapter 15, we have it kind of falls into two major sections. You have verses 1 to 11, which has to do with rules about paying loans, borrowing, paying back, canceling debts. And then... In verses 12 to 18, you have the laws about freeing servants within Israel. And so I want to look at each of those in turn, but I want us to see that, that the underlying concern is for this open-hearted, open-handed treatment of one another in the body of God's people. So first of all, let's look at this idea of canceling debts. Look at verse 1. It says at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. So the number seven was a big number for the people of Israel, as you probably know. They, every uh, seven days, you know, their, their life revolved around these sevens. Every seven days was the Sabbath day. And on the Sabbath day, they weren't supposed to do any work, right? Well, did you know Israel also had a seven-year cycle? There was not only a Sabbath day, they were supposed to practice a Sabbath year. And on the Sabbath year, they weren't supposed to do any work the whole year. They, they were to let their land fly, lay fallow. No planting, no sowing, no tilling the soil, no pruning your grapevines. Just let it kind of go wild for a year. And trust that God is going to provide for you from year number six during year number seven. And so it was to be a year where, where everything went fallow, where everyone stopped working for that year. Could you imagine if once every seven years our whole society just kind of stopped working? We all just took a year off and, uh, and trusted that God would provide for us. And then, it, I mean... I don't know how that, how that would work, but it's, it's kind of a cool idea. Well, during that seventh year, something else happened. 
and that was debts were not paid that year. The debt repayment kind of went fallow, if you want to talk, uh, think about it that way. And see it here in verse 1. Uh, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how you shall cancel the loan. Um, this is how it should be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he's made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment from his fellow Israelite or brother, because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt from your brother uh, that your brother owes you. So during this seven year, debts were canceled. Now it's it's difficult to tell from the the Hebrew word here whether what was taking place was a complete cancellation of debt or whether it was deferral of payment for one year. And you, you know it says here, at least in this translation, you must cancel debts. But that's that's probably a little stronger word. I think the Hebrew word is it's more like releasing debts, kind of just letting go. And it's not clear whether that's a complete cancellation or a deferral of payment. And scholars, you know, you read this scholar and he thinks it's this and that scholar thinks it's that. At the end of the day, I've actually kind of, you know, I, I lean toward, I think this is just a deferral of payment so that for one year you just weren't paying back. And then after that year, then you started your payments again on your loan. And the reason I, I think that is because of the parallelism between the Sabbath day and the Sabbath year. And, and it, w- it was a day of rest. You know, the, the land went fallow for a year. They didn't give the land back to the original landowners. That's what happened during the year of Jubilee. They, they just let it go rest for a year. And I think in the same way, debts were not repaid for one year. But then after that, debts went back again. So, so I, I think that's what's going on. But regardless of what the actual rules of debt repayment were, the point is generosity. The point is being generous and kind to those within the covenant community who are in need. Look at verse 7. Look where the emphasis lands. If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your poor brother. Aren't those wonderful little word pictures? Hard-hearted, tight-fisted. Hard heart, tight-fisted. Neither a borrower nor a lender be. You know, this is mine. I'll take care of myself. You take care of yourself and we'll all just take care of ourselves. So we'll put up a nice big fence and we'll feel safe. You know, that's hard-hearted, the attitude. Tight-fisted, the action. And he's saying, don't be like that. That's not how it's supposed to be in the body of Christ. Instead, we should be open-hearted to each other and open-handed to each other and care for each other and meet each other's needs. And you say, well, well, well how much? What am, I supposed, what am I supposed to do? Well, you've got to love verse 8. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. So how much? Well, it depends on what he needs. Whatever he needs, that's how much. Like, ha, that sounds kind of blank checky to me, you know. I, you know, where are the controls here? But really, this idea of just generosity toward each other, among those in the community of faith. It's pretty amazing. Now, you can imagine how challenging this would be for the person who's lending. I mean, maybe you can get inside the head of the lender. You know, so, so some other Israelite comes to him and is like, look, you know, I, can I talk to you? It's been a rough couple of years for us, and we're kind of behind, and, you know, my crops were kind of bad, and, you know, last year I lost like 10 sheep, and so I, you know, I don't know if we're going to make ends meet this year. Do you think you could lend us some to get us through this year? 
And, uh, and, and now, you know, just imagine the lender, you know, he's, he's just thinking like in his own mind, he's like, yeah, of course you don't have enough. You've not done a good job managing your crops. And then he's thinking, ah, oh, but I guess I got to lend. Oh no, wait a minute. What year is this? He looks at his, you know, sundial watch or whatever it is. And he's like, this is year number six. Oh man, of course you had to ask me in year six because year seven is coming and I'm not going to get paid that year. So really, you're asking me to wait like an extra whole year to get back my money. Like, oh, for crying out loud. You know, this guy's got a lot of nerve. You know, that, that's, that's how we tend to think. We, we size things up like that. But So look what it says in verse 9. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. Here's a wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near. So that you do not show ill will toward your needy brother and give him nothing. That's what hard-hearted, tight-fisted looks like. It's calculating whether or not you're going to give it back and then in light of that, giving or not giving to someone in need within the community of God's people. Hard-hearted, tight-fisted. What year is this? Year six? Hmm, I don't know if that guy's really going to make good. Yeah, sorry, I really can't help you this year. It's tight for us too. You know, see ya. They don't do that. Because what could happen? It says, he may then appeal to the Lord against you and you'll be found guilty of sin. Give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord will bless you in all the work and in everything you put your hand to do. So, so be generous. Be, be free. It's a different ethic within the community of God's people. We're supposed to lend and to, to borrow if we have need, which I think sometimes is even harder for us to say, hey, I, I could use some help with something. And so in the New Testament church, we see this is the way that believers treated each other. Um, listen to this from Acts chapter 4. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it to you. This is a description of what it was like economically within the church in Jerusalem. It says in Acts chapter 4, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. What an amazing picture of, of generosity and care for each other. Some have called this you know, sort of a Christian socialism, which I think is a really kind of anachronistic idea. This is not socialism. This is not everyone put it all together and divide it up. This is just generosity. This is people loving each other so much, people treating each other as family, that they do what family members do. They watch out for each other, they pick up the slack for each other, they care for each other, meet each other's needs. You know, wow, you know, what a picture of that kind of generosity. And it's a blessing. Um, you know, when the church functions that way, it's really an incredible thing. I remember when uh, I was in high school, I'd just been a Christian for a couple of years, had just recently come to know the Lord. And I was, uh, I was at McDonald's getting a lunch or something. And there was a lady from my church who was an older lady. And she was kind of one of those really bubbly, effervescent Christians who was just really full of joy. And she saw me there at McDonald's and knew I was you know, a young Christian teenager. And so she said to me, oh, Jeremy, let me buy your lunch. And she said, I want to buy your lunch. And I was like, ah, oh, nah, nah, let me buy your lunch. Ah, nah, nah. And this went back and forth. And, and I, I have a stubborn part of me and I so I just kind of got like no you're not going to buy my lunch I really don't want you to do that 
and uh, you know, you're a teenager, you don't quite know all the social norms, am I supposed to do this? And so I, I just said no. And finally she kind of relented, and I'll, I'll never forget this, she, she kind of got sad, and she said, you know, Jeremy, you robbed me of a blessing today. And I was like, <laughs> I never thought about it that way. I, you know, I just, I never thought that was a blessing. You know, I thought I wasn't taking her money, but I was really taking her blessing. You know, she's like, you, I could have blessed you. And that, that always stuck with me. I'm like, I robbed her of a blessing. But w- what a different way to think about it. So now, you know, when everyone offers to pay my lunch, I'm like, kind of sweet being a pastor like you know <laughs> pastor let me get that okay <laughs> i didn't know you were paying i mean let's go to burton's you know what i'm saying uh, yeah how do we get that kind of generosity how do we become that kind of a generous church you, you know we're building this building and part of the reason we want to do that is we want to make room to reach out into our community invite people to come in you know what, what draws people into a church man a church where people love each other like that, that draws people to the Lord. A church where people see the gospel in action, not just a bunch of talk, but really caring for each other, you know, that, that really shows the reality of Christ in our midst. That's how we reach people and, and make the gospel real so that when we speak about Jesus, people are like, yeah, I, I see it. I, I see Jesus in the way you love each other. How do we become this kind of a generous people? Because I, I find stinginess in my own soul. I find uh, tight-fistedness and hard-heartedness in my soul. How do I grow in generosity? It's not natural to us. Well, go back to Deuteronomy 15. What Moses does repeatedly is he reminds them of God's generosity both in the past and in the future. So the present challenge of being open-hearted and open-handed to each other is kind of bracketed by what God has done in the past and what God will do in the future. It's like, look, you're being buried under an avalanche of blessing, Israel. God has blessed you so much in the past. He's going to keep blessing you in the future. So, so take a little bit of that blessing and share it with others. And when I put my eyes on what God has done for me and I realize His un you know, unfathomable generosity toward me, it moves me toward generosity to others. I mean, look at this thing in the past, you know, verse 4. He says, However, there should be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess, in the land the Lord is giving you, do you hear that? The Lord is giving you this land. It's like, <clears throat> Israel, why do you think you have these fields? God gave them to you. You know, verse 7, If there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns, the Lord your God is giving you the land the Lord God is giving you. It's God who's giving the land. So remember, Israel, this whole giving, lending, it's all because God gave you this property anyway. You would have been slaves in Egypt if God hadn't saved you. So there's a recognition of God's generosity. It's like what we talked about last Sunday on tithing. The 10% you give to the Lord is His, and the 90% you keep is His. It's all His. And once that really sinks in, it, it, it frees me up to give. But it's not just the past. It's also looking into the future of God's generosity. You know, look at verse 4. However, there should be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, He will richly bless you, if only 
you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as He has promised. You'll lend to many nations, but you'll borrow from none. You'll rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. Generosity now will beget God's generosity in the future. Same thing in verse 10. Give generously to Him and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all the work of your hands and in everything you put your hand to. So it's in God's going to bless in the future. He's blessed in the past. So you know what? Be a blessing right now in light of what God has done and will do. We see the same thing in the New Testament. Our, our loving concern in practical ways for each other in the New Testament is also bracketed by, bookended by, God's past love for us and God's future love for us. Uh, I want to show you this. Put a bookmark here in Deuteronomy. I'd like you to turn to uh, the 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Not John 3.16, but 1 John 3.16. It's on page 1209 if you're using a pew Bible. And, and look at present generosity inspired by God's past generosity to us. 1 John 3.16 1 John 3.16 says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us love, not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. And so at some point it's got to go beyond, hey, wow, that's tough. Listen, I'll be praying for you. Like, do pray for each other, but it's sometimes that we need to do more than pray. We need to meet each other's needs as Christians, as within the family of faith, the brotherhood of believers and sisters. We need to do practical things. And what's the motivation? Again, verse 16, because Christ laid down His life for us. Jesus gave up everything for me. He gave up His whole life for me. And, and I'm feeling stingy about a hundred bucks between you and me. What's a hundred bucks? What's a thousand bucks between two Christians? Really? What's an afternoon between two Christians where one Christian gives up some time to help another Christian? You know, sometimes it's giving money, sometimes it's giving time. I mean, what is that between us? If Christ has given so much for us. So we look in the past. We're like, wow, Christ died for me. I need to be generous toward you. But we also look into the future and we see God still has more in store for me. God has eternal life laid up for me. So the past, the future, I'm surrounded by God's generosity. You know, um, look at Luke chapter 14. Here's a look at generosity in light of God's future blessing. So we looked at the past blessing. Let's look at the future blessing. Luke chapter 14. It's on page uh, 1034 in the Pew Bible. So in this story in Luke 14, Jesus is at a party. It's with all the important people in town, all the Pharisees, all the religious leaders. And there Jesus is. You've got to love what He says in uh, Luke chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus said to His host, so now Jesus is going to lecture the host on how to throw the right kind of party got to love this. He goes, then Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. So when you have a party, don't invite the, the people that you're related to or you like. I'm like, 
That's why you have a party, is to hang out with people you like, right? I mean, that's the whole point. But I love it. He goes, if so, the host who invited both of you will come, or, or sorry, uh, I was reading the wrong verse there. If you do, verse 12, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That's just crazy radical. <laughs> like, so next time you have Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, Labor Day, 4th of July, make sure you invite a few people at least who have no chance of paying you back. People who are never going to have you over to their house. You wouldn't want to go to their house. <laughs> because it's just like it wouldn't be a great, cool place to be. Find those folks and make sure you invite them too so that your payment will be in the future, so to speak, with the Lord. I mean, in other words, intentionally find people who can't repay the debt. Wow. That's the gospel in the kingdom of God. So God's love for us in the past, God's love for us in the future should free us, should help us let go of that stinginess that we all naturally have in our sinful hearts let go of our heart, let go of our hand, and provide for those in need in our lives, and especially in the community of faith. What if we were that kind of church? And you know what? I think this church is that kind of church. Um, I, you know, one of the cool things about being a pastor is not only free lunches, but uh, another cool thing about being a pastor is you know things. I know things. I hear stories. And I know people in this church really do care for each other. And it's not publicized, it's not in the bulletin, it's under the radar, but I just know year after year of people meeting each other's needs in quiet, humble, unannounced ways. And I just want to encourage you in that as a church and encourage myself in that. We need to keep being that church and even more so, even more so love and and care for each other as a body. That that we would be this kind of family that would look very different from the world around us and, and the kind of love that even spill outside of our walls to the people that God puts in our lives and the concerns He brings before us. But now let's take it a step further. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 15. and I need to wrap this up here, but I love this final segment on freeing servants. We need to take this idea of generosity as if it's not radical enough already and take it even further. Take it even a step deeper. And the reason we need to do that is because Jesus does. Jesus takes it a step deeper in His teaching on debt and repayment. And now we see in verses 12 to 18, the, shift, the, the focus shifts from repaying debts to actual slavery. Look at verse 12. If a fellow Hebrew, a man or woman, sells himself to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year you must let him go free. So what's going on there? What's this whole Hebrews selling themselves to each other? I mean, seriously, in, among God's people? Well, th- what this was, was we, we would probably call it today indentured servitude. So like, what happens if some guy owes you money, but he can't, doesn't pay it back. He can't pay it back. He sells everything he has, and he still can't pay it back. What did you do in those days? I mean, in our day, we file for bankruptcy, right? In, in Israel, you could make yourself an, essentially an indentured servant, a debt slave to the other person. And you were allowed to serve six years. But at the end of that six years, you had to go free. So, kind of, you know, I think like England in the 18th century, you know, we talked about Shakespeare. You know, think of Dickens. 
how many times debtor's prison was a part of Dickens' novels and, and woven into those stories. Well, in the same way, the, there's this kind of indentured servitude, not, not a debtor's prison, but serving another person to pay back a debt. But I love it. At the end of the seven years, you let him go free. So from the time the person becomes your debt slave, start counting seven years. Year seven hits. If it's not repaid, let them go. Even if they haven't totally repaid the debt, let them go. Even if they were kind of a mediocre servant, let them go. Let them go. It's time for your fellow Israelite to go free. And don't just let them go. Let them go, verse 13, with a blessing. When you release him, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. And so it's not like, you know, like in these movies, sometimes you see in movies where some guy gets out of jail, you know, like in the beginning of the Blues Brothers or, you know, the Oceans 11, 12, you know, someone's getting out of jail. And what do they do? They, they come up to the little desk, they take off their prison clothes and, and the prison warden hands them a little brown box with their personal effects that they had brought to prison like five years ago. And, and it's always some scene of some guy walking out of a you know, fenced in area and he's, he's wearing the clothes he had five years ago and the few bucks he had in his pocket five years ago. And it's sort of like, well, your, your time in jail's over now, you know, beat it. And, and the guy walks out into to life. That's not how you release your slaves. Not like that. You know, supply him liberally. The, the Hebrew word there, I don't want to get into Hebrew all the time, but this is a really cool word. The Hebrew word for supply liberally has a root idea of adorning someone with a necklace. So, you know, think of putting a necklace on somebody, bedecking them, bejeweling them. You know, just put, you know, blessing and glory on the person. When they go, you know, give them like 20 sheep and five cows and give them a cart full of grain and throw some huge wine kegs on top of the cart and give them some nice strong ox to pull the cart and give them an iPod, you know, like just heap it on them. Don't make it look like, when they go down the street and people see them, don't make it look like, oh, obviously he just got out of debt servitude. Make it look like, wow, that guy must be someone important. That guy must be someone significant. You know, because you're all part of the same brotherhood. Love each other that way. So even when you send them out, send them out with riches and blessing. In fact, let be such a generous people, be, be such a, a kind and giving people that in some cases a slave might want to stay a slave. I can't even imagine that. What? But look, apparently if they were living the right way, this could be a problem. So you have a law in verse 16. If your servant says to you, I don't want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, then take an all, basically pierce his ear, you know, get a big hole in his ear, and, uh, and that will be the sign that he's your servant for life. Could you imagine people who are so kind to each other, who love each other so much, who are so gracious to each other, that someone would think, I love these people and they love me so much, I would be happy to be a servant for life in this family. What if we loved each other like that? We'd be like, that would be the best job in the world, to be your slave. <laughs> Because I love you, and you love me, and you provide for me, and we're a big family, and, and we're knit together. I mean, that's just, it's tough to get your mind around that. But what if? What if 
that would be a blessing because of, again, the generosity. And so let them go. And if they want to stay, let them stay. In verse 18, do not consider it a hardship to set your servant free because his service for you these six years has been worth twice as much as a hired hand. So don't be stingy. Let him go. And I love that reminder back in verse 15. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you. That's why I give you this command today. Reenact, again, God's past blessing by doing this. Don't be like Pharaoh. Don't be hard-hearted. When they said, let my people go, Pharaoh said no. Don't be like Pharaoh. Let him go and heap on the blessing and the treasure. So what do we do with this in the New Testament church since we don't practice indentured servitude today? How do we handle this? Actually, what we find, I think, in the teaching of Jesus is that it's something even deeper and more profound. One of the ways Jesus handles this teaching on debt and this idea of owing and and being released and slavery and being set free is, is he takes it as kind of a picture for the deeper issue of sin and forgiveness. That sin and forgiveness are a kind of debt and release that we see in the New Testament. You know, how did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. What does that prayer mean? When I ask God to forgive me my debts, what does that mean? Am I asking God to cancel my mortgage? No. I mean, that'd be great. But that's not what I'm asking. I'm saying, Lord, forgive my sins. That sin is a kind of debt accrued to each other. And, and I will forgive the debts, the sins of others against me, even as I ask you to forgive my sins, Lord. And so Jesus often in his teaching in the Gospels, he'll, he'll describe sin and forgiveness through the, the word language of, of debt and debt repayment and release from debt. And you know, it kind of fits. Have you ever sinned against some? This is a stupid question. When you've sinned against somebody, like I have, when you've hurt somebody, when you've done something wrong, you know, how do you feel when it all sort of comes out in the open? Well, you feel like a heel. You feel stupid. You, you feel kind of indebted to that person. You feel shamed around them. You know, when it's like you can't make eye contact with them because it's just a reminder of what you've done. It's like you owe them. You owed them something that you didn't give them, and now they kind of have an ownership on you. Or think about it from the other angle. Has anybody ever sinned against you and it's finally sort of come out in the open? How do you feel toward that person? Often resentful, angry, vindictive. And you know, you hold on to that because it's power and it's strength. When someone sins against you, you often feel victimized. You often are victimized. And and when you're victimized, it feels good to get power over your victimizer. It's just because you felt weak and now you feel strong. And holding on to resentment is a kind of power you have. It's, it's like slavery. You know, you just imagine that person has a chain, an iron collar around their neck from what they did. And there's a chain running from the iron collar. And you're holding the other end. And every once in a while, it's fun to just <clears throat> give a little yank. Hey, don't forget, you did that to me. You know, it's like when I walk my... I have this stupid little terrier uh, <laughs> named Princess Leia. And uh, Princess Leia is always pulling. And sometimes it drives me crazy. So sometimes I yank on that leash. I'm like, hey, you know, I'm the alpha dog. 
And if she comes back in line, and then she'll start going again, I'll pull her again. You know, and, and that's what we do to each other, right? We, we give little tugs. We're like, don't you forget. I remember. I got you still. Are there chains in this church hooked up on one pew and running all the way up the balcony to another pew where someone else has a, a hand on it? This happens in marriages. Somebody hurts somebody else in a marriage and five years later they're still, you did that to me. you know. And we wonder why our marriages flounder because <laughs> we're still yanking each other's, no, you did that to me, you did that to me. And, and we're pulling on these chains We've got to let go. We've got to forgive. We have to drop it. Let go of the slaves that we've made through sin and unforgiveness. Let me look at one final passage, then I'll let you go have Mother's Day lunch. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Page 974. Matthew 18, verse 21. Really incredible chap- section. Matthew 18:21, page 974. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? You know, it's a good biblical number. Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. You know, now that doesn't mean literally once you hit 77, you're done. It's, it's, it just means like, hey, Peter, more, <laughs> a lot more, right? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Well, what about 77? What about forgive 70? Wow, that's a lot. How could I do that? Why would I forgive somebody 77 times? Well, let me explain, Jesus essentially says. Verse 23, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. The king was going to collect debts. And he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents, which is a ridiculous amount of money, was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. You must become a debt slave. Isn't it interesting? Here we have forgiveness and sin, and Jesus explains it through debt, slavery, all, loans, all that kind of language. So the servant fell to his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I'll pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. He, he wiped out this ridiculously huge debt the man could never repay. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which was a rather small amount of money in comparison. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant did the same thing. He fell at his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I'll pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off. He had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. They went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And in his anger, the master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. We have been forgiven so much through Jesus Christ. 
We're like the man who has forgiven thousands of talents. Think about the debt that we owe God. We owe God an infinite debt of worship. The reason you and I are here on planet Earth is to love God, to praise Him, and to be His. And that's exactly what we haven't done with our whole lives. We owe God an infinite debt. We deserve debtor's prison. We deserve hell. Without Christ, every person in this room is going to hell. It is a lie that you're okay, I'm okay, and we all go to heaven except for a few bad terrorists. We're all sinners. We're going to hell. But in His mercy, in His kindness, God sent His Son Jesus to pay an infinite debt that I could never repay, even if I tried to pull myself together today. I could never repay it. And God paid my debt with the most valuable commodity in the universe. The blood of Jesus Christ was shed for my sins. But not only did God forgive me, not only did He wash away my sins, it's not like He just said, okay, now you're forgiven, now get out of here. He loaded up my cart. He, th- he forgave me. He brought me into His family. I've been adopted as His son. He gave me the Holy Spirit. He gave me the Bible. He gave me a church family. He gave me His own presence as a Christian. I, I can talk to the Lord because of what Jesus has done. I, the Lord is in my life. He gave me a purpose. He gave me a calling. He's, he's using my life all through the blood of Jesus. And, and that's just the beginning. That's just the cart. Where's the cart going? It's going to an inheritance that Scripture has a difficult time explaining to us because it's so beyond our imagination. I was reading uh, the Bible the other day with my two littlest kids and um, that little kid question came up. You know that little kid question. What's heaven going to be like? You know, it's just sort of like, I'm sitting in the cloud playing a harp. I mean, what am I going to, what's it like? And so I asked them, I said, what's your favorite place to be in the whole world? And, and my daughter said, home. And I says, it's home. <laughs> Except amplified a million times. But whatever home means, safety, happiness, it's, it's home. It's everything that our hearts know that we want. It's God's presence Himself. Where He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Where every, every longing is fulfilled in Christ Himself. That's where the cart's going. And so look at what God has saved you from. Look at hell. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't water it down. Hell is real and the world is going there. Look at it. Don't flinch. And then look at the cross and what Christ has done. Don't flinch. And then if you can handle the brightness of it, maybe you might need sunglasses, look at where we're going. And then, we can't forgive each other? We're pulling on each other's chains? Really? Some time ago, I, uh, I, I had a, I don't know how to call it, a petty resentment in my heart against a person in this church. Do you ever get those? They're stupid it wasn't anything anyone really did, but it's just like 
stupid resentment built up over dumb things. It's like it was so kind of weird that I didn't even realize it was there. And one day we were having communion here in the church. One of the elders was leading, and I was going down the aisles trying not to drop the <laughs> drop the stuff. You know, I always have this panicked feeling I'm going to drop it. But um, you know, I'm serving communion and just kind of listening to the music and doing my thing. And suddenly I stopped at a pew, and that person was sitting right in front of me. And I'm handing them the tokens and emblems of Christ's death for us. And I had to hand them the bread. And I had to go back again and hand them the cup. <laughs> this person, I, I had to hand this person these things that I had allowed a petty resentment in my heart to build up. As we're sitting there worshiping Jesus for forgiving us. And we're taking items that remind us of His sacrifice. It's like, wow. And so just right there, I just repented in my heart. I said, Lord, forgive me for not forgiving a brother or sister. Forgive me for holding on to resentment to anybody for what you've done for me. May we get a clear vision of Jesus. And may that vision of Jesus set us free to not only be a generous people, but to be a forgiving people so that we might not just talk about the Gospel and sing the Gospel, but that we might live the Gospel in community. And then, watch what God will do. Because when Christ is lifted up, He will draw all men to Himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Show us the reality of Your fierce, eternal judgment of sin against sin. Lord Jesus, take us to the cross. Show us Your dying love. Lord, help us to stand at the empty tomb, awed at Your power to overcome sin and death. Jesus, give us a little tiny glimpse of home and eternal life. And then God, may it transform us into a generous compassionate, radically giving and forgiving people, Lord. I just pray that You'd make us this way. Lord, make us this kind of church where the Gospel is not just something we talk about, but where it's been sort of seared into the very patterns of relationship that we have and the way we live our lives so that the Gospel may go forward, so that the South Shore may be saved. So this new building here may be filled with people coming to Jesus. So that new churches may be planted. Lord, we pray that so many people would come to You that no one building anywhere can hold them. But Lord, may we see new churches growing, Lord. May we see the Gospel taking hold of the south shore of Boston. And Lord, may we be a people who live lives consistent with it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.